Today in a special episode, we'll be interviewing comedy superstar Maz Drabrani. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, what we normally do is I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. However, today is a special episode. Today, our guest is comedian, actor, and podcaster, Maz Drabrani. Okay, Maz Jabrani, full disclosure to our listeners that I have a um, a strong connection to you through comedy, through love, through life. Strong enough that I named my son Maz. He's not named after you, but he's not not named after you. The key is, Maz, do you continue to not do anything to scandalize the Maz name? Did I make the right decision? Well, no, you see, the, the, he doesn't have to be named after me. The fact that I'm older than him makes it that he's named after me. You understand what I'm saying? Like I was Correct. named before, he's named chronologically. after. Chronologically. 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 So any yeah. Maz that came after me was named after me. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's all about where you put the emphasis. Yes. And I'm putting the emphasis, oh, your On son was named after, after me? Oh, that's great. Now you can slow it down. And you understand what I'm saying? So I'm going with that. <laughs> and I like that because if you do do something scandalous, I'll always say, no, he wasn't named after him. He was named after him. Boom. Nice. Exactly. Well you got said. you gave me a, you gave us an out, which also doesn't reveal anything about your day-to-day scandalous behavior, which is yes. great. If people don't know this, and I think if they've come to see you and, and watched your career, they would know this to some degree. They, I would say you have a higher education than most comedians is something you pursued. And I wanna ask people, I may have heard this from you in green rooms, but you know, our audience wasn't there. How uh, what what were your goals originally? Outside of comedy, what were you doing in university? It's a pretty interesting background you have that has nothing to do with comedy. And how did comedy then come up? Well, the bar is low because there's a lot of uneducated comedians. So right out the gate, just by reading a book or two, you're above them, number Boom. one. Yeah, so Huge coming from a, to the community. <laughs> coming from an immigrant background, I was born in Iran, grew up in America since I was six years old. Immigrant parents, they had no idea or concept of what a life in acting or comedy would be. So when I was around 10 years old, growing up in Northern California, Eddie Murphy was the biggest star in the world. I wanted to be Eddie Murphy. I got into plays. I started doing plays. The The teachers would always say, hey, you've got the whatever that thing you've got the thing that it takes and i think part of that is just i like being on stage i first discovered that i did a i did a musical when i was in the seventh grade it was a seventh eighth grade school and the director shirley bonbright had said when you're doing a musical you when you're on stage always be smiling when you're singing and dancing and at the time i was in the seventh grade so i was one of the background singers i was just like a small part but one day I showed up at the rehearsal and I was a little sick, a little under the weather. And I went over to Miss Bombright. I said, hey, Miss Bombright, I'm a little under the weather. She goes, oh, okay, just uh, thanks for coming. And, and I went up on stage and I'm singing and dancing. I got a smile on my face. And she stops the whole rehearsal. Everybody stop. Everybody stop. Look at him. He's sick. He came. He's singing. He's dancing. He's smiling. Learn from him. And I'm looking around. I'm like, oh, me? I was like, oh, this is great. So basically, I, I listened, whereas like, you know, being a good immigrant child, you learn to listen, 
Whereas all my American friends were like, probably like, whatever, Miss Bomb, right? Mind your own business, you know, Americans. And, and as a side note, but related, you listen so much that singing and dancing are often the beginning of every show you do to this day. Yes, when I do live shows on the road, I always come out with a nice high energy song and I dance a little bit. Yeah. And then I get into my act, which again, sidebar on that, it just, I don't know where that started, why it started. It's been fun. It raises the energy. But there's been a couple of times where I've come out, I dance literally for like a minute and then I do my one hour show. There's been times where after the show, people have come on and be like, you know, my favorite part of your show was the dancing. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. So I guess the I'll start. The part that takes no work or preparation yeah. Yeah. whatsoever. That's yeah, get back to writing. Yeah. So long story short, every time these teachers would tell my parents, oh, this guy's got the ability to, to do this. The it factor. The, the it factor on stage. He's a ham, basically. My dad would just be like, you know, those people are crazy. So basically, they they kind of urged me and convinced me that I should go study something and maybe do this as a hobby. So I went to uh, undergrad and studied political science at uh, UC Berkeley. And then I, I my junior year abroad, oh, I was going to go be a lawyer to please my parents, basically. I, I have zero desire to be a lawyer. But because they th they said it's like lawyer, doctor, engineer... All right, I'll be a lawyer. Then my junior year in college, I go to study abroad in Italy. And to this day, anytime I see any young people, I say, go abroad for a year. It, it will change your life. And it really did. It was the, one of the best years of my life. And um, while I was there, there was this professor. His name was Vincenzo Pace. He went as Enzo Pace. He had, he had the goatee. He had like the blazer. He might even had the, the little patch under the elbow patch. And he had a gold pocket watch. And before every class would start, he would look at the pocket watch. And then once class would start, he'd close it. And then he'd go, allora, momento, which was like, allora means then or now, like, let's discuss. And it was the sociology of Islam. So he'd be like, no, let's talk about Muhammad, whatever. He's just really this cool dude. And I was like, that's what I want to be. Because in my mind, I thought if I'm a professor, then at least I get to be in front of people like you would with acting oh, and yeah. comedy. Still a and it's a formidable job that my parents can be proud of. So came back to the States, told my parents I want to be a professor. They lost their mind. I enrolled in a PhD program at UCLA. And while I was there, I went and auditioned for the main stage play at UCLA that all the undergrads were trying to get into. And I got one of the parts. And so by night, I would rehearse this very avant-garde theater play that I was really into. And then by day, I'd go to my poli-sci classes. And inevitably, all the poli-sci classes would always end with us discussing our roles as political scientists. And, and it was always publish or perish. It wasn't like, oh, you get to stand in front of a group of students and wax poetic. No, it was like, write a theory, you know, come up with why America has a, a, a class problem, write the theory, Go around the world, defend it, come back, write your next theory. And if you're lucky enough, some politician will read your book and quote it here or there. And I was like, wow, we have zero practical use. And that's when I decided to drop out and pursue maybe acting. And at first, I, I got another day job at an advertising agency because, again, I came from this background where like, if I was just playing video games and then going on auditions, my mom would like shoot me. So I got a job at an advertising agency. And it wasn't until my mid 20s. I was 26 years old when I finally decided to do this. And a big weight was lifted off of my shoulders. You know, for comedians, that's kind of a late time to start. A lot of comics start when they're 17, 18, early 20s. I was mid 20s. 
But anytime people ask me, they go, when, when did you start considering yourself successful? I say the moment I decided to do this, I was successful. Everything else has just been icing on the cake. And then so it's interesting you mentioned your background in political science because you do talk a lot about politics in your comedy and on your podcast, which, which we'll talk about in, in a few minutes. So do you think you were just destined to do this because this is something you find fascinating and that's just part of your being? Uh, you know, whereas other comics, they're like, no politics. We're not talking about politics. I'm going to keep my stuff about, you know, whatever, airline food and, you know, you know supermarkets. And genitalia. Like uh, genitalia. You know, I think you talk about whatever interests you, right? So if you're single, you're talking about dating life. When you're married, you're talking about being a parent. I've always been interested in politics. I've always been very left-leaning and especially like, you know, listen, being Iranian-American in America, I started doing stand-up in 98 and I took a stand-up comedy class and there they told us, talk about what makes you different in the class. So they go through and be like, you know, some guy's like, oh, I'm gay. Someone's like, I'm black. Someone says, I'm this, I'm that. Well, I'm Iranian. Okay, great. Talk about that experience. How about growing up Iranian in America? And the truth is, as Iranians, when we came to America late 78, very shortly after we came, the Iranians took Americans hostage and we became public enemy number one. I always say, like, we're one of the first immigrant groups that came to this country and then our homeland did something to our new home and then there was no one else to beat up but us. Even though we left that country because we just didn't agree with that government. So... I saw how politics can demonize people, you know, whether it's from just news coverage all the way to the media, all the way to the way politicians talk about people, all the way to the way people get motivated to fear a group of people. And I mean, the Trump years basically played every card from, okay, it's the Mexicans, rapists and drug dealers. Then it was the Muslims, terrorists are coming across the board. Then going into the elections, he would say, you know, the, the language was so interesting because he would say, oh, do you want these people coming to your, you know, they're going to be coming to your to the suburbs. He was trying to scare suburban moms from voting Democrat because he was trying, he basically was alluding to the protests and the riots, Black Lives Matter. So the rioters weren't Black Lives Matter protesters, but they had done a good job in saying these people are going to come to your neighborhood and these people meant black people. So it's just interesting how there's always somebody coming to get you. And I just know that I'd seen that as a kid. So when I started doing stand-up at first, talk about what makes me unique. Well, what made me unique was being Iranian in America, being demonized in a way. So early on, I'm talking about that. And then September 11th happens, and I quickly see that the Bush administration is going to use it as an excuse to go into Iraq and go into Afghanistan. And you start seeing the – I mean, the truth is when September 11th happened – I was very nationalistic in mind because I was obviously heartbroken for the lives that were lost on that day. But then seeing how the administration just pivoted to their plan to go into Iraq, I go, whoa, 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 we got to start calling out the hypocrisy. So basically, if like my favorite kind of comedy has been that, like Eddie Murphy was my first hero. But then once I started to kind of get into it, I was like, okay, let me listen to more Richard Pryor. And he was talking about social issues, some political issues, Carlin, social, political and then, you know, there you hold John Stewart and, and uh, Daily Show and all that stuff. And then currently I, I listen to Stephen Colbert's monologue pretty religiously. And, and I really, I just, I think if you can do any kind of art and, and be saying something underneath it, I think that to me, that's always the best art. 
but any repercussions from that, from feeling that need to do those things together, saying something in addition to your comedy? All the time, yeah. I mean, early on during the Bush administration, there was times when I would do some shows and some audience members would get mad and yell something at me. I mean, there was it actually inspired a joke. There was one time I was doing stand-up at the comedy store when we were at war with Iraq and uh, I was making fun of Bush and some girl was sitting in the front. She says, you can't make fun of our commander-in-chief during a time of war and i guess she she was in the military and i and i was like that's the whole point of the reason we're supposedly went to the war is to bring democracy to iraq and you're telling me i can't practice my democratic rights here i mean being someone who came from iran and saw what can happen under under a totalitarian state i really value the freedom in america to say and and make fun of our leaders and so it's funny to me because a lot of times I think people forget that that's the whole point. Like when, again, when Trump didn't want to go to the correspondence dinner, that to me reminded me of all of the dictators in any country where I performed in, who they, when, when you would show up in some of the countries in the Middle East, they would say, you can talk about anything you want, but don't talk about our leader. And that shows you a sense of insecurity in the leadership that jokes could bring that leader down right? That's the weakness of that leader. And so that was similar to, to, to Trump. And then under the Trump administration, it was a strange time because a lot of immigrants ended up liking him. And a lot of immigrants, a lot of Iranian immigrants loved him. And I got into, I lost a lot of fans, like Iranian fans that were more conservative because of my criticism of Trump. And I think one of the reasons a lot of Iranians, it was, it, it blew my mind because I go, wait a minute, don't you see he's doing this Muslim ban now in the Iranian community, you got Jews, you got Christians, you got Muslims. So the religion might not be as important. However, I think a lot of Iranians in America differentiated themselves. They said, no, we're here. We are part of the Trump team. He's not talking about us. And so first of all, the hypocrisy of, wait a minute, you came and now you want to close the door to other Iranians coming, number one. That's hypocritical in my opinion. Number two, they had fallen for this idea. As Trump does, he would promise things and say things that he didn't deliver on. So the Iran deal is a horrible deal. I'm going to get a better deal and I'm going to get rid of the mullahs, basically. Well, he said it all, but not, nothing happened. If anything, he put us in a worse situation because Iran, once he pulled out of the Iran deal, the Iranian government went ahead and started to Went, went back to, to, to developing their nuclear program. And they turned to China, and now China has influence there. So people just hear the words. Like he, when he killed Soleimani, who was the general in Iran, who was this bad person, and they bombed his car when he was in Iraq, again, a lot of Iranians were like, see, he's tough. He killed Soleimani. Not thinking of the the next logical step, which is like, well, then they're just going to replace that guy with another general. And now you're going to put us on the brink of war with Iran. And war with Iran, unfortunately, again, this goes to the stupidity of some of these people. They don't see that a war with Iran, there's no like mullah heat-seeking missiles that are just going <laughs> to kill the mullahs. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like you're going to kill half a million. Iran's a highly populated country, 80, 90 million. Tehran is a very, very populated uh, uh, city. So again, I think a lot of people fell for Trump's promises. And because of that, I think I lost a lot of fans inside the community because they thought I was losing my mind. But the truth is, I just, I couldn't be silent. It was, I did a bit in my, I had a, I had a special called Pandemic Warrior that I 
filmed in 2019 in Dubai. And I did a bit in it about like when I first started doing jokes about Trump, I, I was like, I'm going to lean into it. And then and then one time I was leaning into it at the improv and Mel, uh, Melrose Improv. Some guy started yelling back. I started yelling back. Again, he was one of these guys who came to America when he was 13 or something, and he was from Iran. So I lost my mind. I go, how can you, don't you see the hypocrisy in what you're saying? And he was like, blah, 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 back and forth, back and forth. And then I turned to the audience, and the audience was looking at me like, dude, what happened to the show? You've lost yourself. And I realized, you know what? I'm going to start doing. I said, I, and at that point, the, the I started calling the, the tour Peaceful Warrior because I said, I got to fight peacefully. So I'm just going to Tai Chi. The next time somebody yells at me about Trump, I'm just going to Tai Chi it. So first of all, I cut back on some of the harder opinions that I was throwing out at him, but I still had jokes about him, but I wasn't going to like do 10 minutes. I was going to do like six minutes. And then there was a couple of times, it actually worked really well, where an audience member would lose their shit. You're like, you can't, da, da, da. And I, and I just would be like, thank you so much. Oh my God. What a great country that this person can express themselves. And then the, and then the audience is yell, booing them, going boo. And I'm like, no, no, let them talk. And actually, if you guys go to YouTube and you put Maz Jobrani, Trump heckler, this happened at um, a club in Burbank called Flappers where this white lady was at the show. She watched the whole show. The Trump stuff came at the end. And she watched the whole show and was laughing. And at the very end, when I'm doing this whole bit about Trump, and by the way, the, the bit wasn't even that, like I've heard comedians be like, oh, he's a piece of shit, blah, blah, blah. This was like, the bit was all about how he keeps tweeting and how it's impossible to avoid him and how like his tweets are like Tetris and the thing, it just keeps coming and you got to keep trying to fight it. So there's this bit that I get very physical at where I like, I talk about one thing, like I go, you know, Stormy Daniels. Then I go, Stormy Daniels, you know, whatever, Ukraine. Then da 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 It just keeps coming, coming. And I'm going back and forth on the stage. It's a high energy bit. And then this lady starts yelling, I, as a woman, I'm offended. And she's yelling at me. And the whole time, I'm like, I love you. This is great. I go, I only have two more Trump jokes. You can stay. You can go. And, you know, she didn't know what to do with it because I didn't yell back at her. And it was like, and it was, and it felt really good. And the funny thing was, I felt proud of myself because I handled it like Tai Chi Master. And I, and I walked into the green room, like feeling like, because the audience was with me, they were laughing. I like floated past everybody into the green room. I go in the green room and then the comedians come running back. They go, oh my God, your audience is going off on that lady. I go, what? So whereas I Tai chi it, there was audience members going by her going like, you bitch, cussing her out. That's like, so oh, funny. No. Well, you know, there's so many things you, you brought up that I want to touch on. You know, it's funny, My I'm a physician, right? So Ali and I's podcast, Doctor vs. Comedian, I'm the doctor in it. And so my wife's a physician as well. She's much more calm than I am. She's always like killing with kindness. That's how you get stuff is to kill him with kindness. And so I was thinking about this and I think about Peaceful Warrior, which was, as you said, the original name for your last stand-up special. And we had the story, Ali and I had talked about that I was going to tell you about. I don't know how familiar you probably are, but some of our listeners may not be that familiar with the Canadian political scene. So we have three major parties. Thankfully, they're labeled as what they are. So the conservatives are the conservative right-leaning party. The liberals are center-left. But then we also have a far-left NDP, the New Democratic Party, which is much more left-leaning, more most socialist-leaning. And so the leader of that is Jagmeet Singh, who's a Sikh guy, right? And in the, the last kind of election, he was kind of giving a talk to a group of people in the run-up for the election, and a woman came up to him, and she said, you, he's Sikh, right? She's like, you're trying to impose Sharia law 
and your support the Muslim Brotherhood and going off on him like this. And again, his reaction was just like the way you approach it. He says, you know, this is his quote, we believe in love and courage. We don't want to be intimidated by hate. We don't want hatred to ruin a positive event. So let's show himself and the audience how we treat someone with love. We welcome you. We love you. We support you. And when I was uh, reading about Peaceful Warrior and hearing about this kind of Tai Chi approach, I thought, wow, what a similar approach you two have. And Jagmeet Singh, by the way, martial artist, trained martial artist. So you're on to something, Maz. Clearly, you're you're following the best. Yeah, you know, I think what, what's happened is people have like, in a way, I mean, they've, they've kind of lost their minds. I mean, because the fact is, I always say, again, growing up in America, we didn't, I didn't really travel out of the country that much. You know, I went to Italy my junior year, but then it wasn't until around 2007 when I was part of this tour that you guys, are, I'm sure, are familiar with called the Access of Evil Comedy Tour, where we went to the Middle East and started doing shows there. And at the time, 2007, you know, imagine the Middle East has that image of terrorism and all that stuff. I just remember going to Egypt. I remember going to Jordan, Lebanon, you name it, Kuwait. And I would see the people walking around in the traditional garb. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, if an American had never left and only knew the Middle East, Middle Easterners from what they see in the news, if they came here, they think they're surrounded by a bunch of terrorists. But in reality, those guys were like, you know, accountants and shop owners and just trying to live their lives. And most people in most of these countries are just trying to work, make some money, feed their family. And so I think end of the day, we have so much in common, like somebody like me and a Marjorie Taylor Greene, she wants what's best for herself and her family. I want what's best for myself and my family. And yet you buy into this rhetoric that you, you know, like when you listen to sometimes the things that they hear about, oh, they're coming to get our guns and the liberals are socialists and they want to, I mean, all these labels that they put on, oh, they want to, they want to groom our kids towards homosexuality. I mean, all this stuff. If you don't take a second to go past the headline and go, well, you know what, let me, let me Google real quickly and see if there really is a cabal of people who are trying to groom our kids. Like, can you groom uh, you know, it's funny, uh, uh, George Takei, I follow him on Twitter. He had a great tweet where he was like, he said something along the lines of like, you know, straight people tried to groom me towards being straight forever. And he's like, I can tell you it didn't work. And that's the point. I mean, your sexuality is your sexuality. You are who you are. And so all of that to say, I think people have kind of lost their minds. And as you just said about the left politician there, that lady had heard about Sharia law is coming and all and all of that stuff and didn't logically think for a second first of all like first of all just click past that headline and go oh he's a Sikh wait a minute what's that oh that's not even Muslim oh right let me just let me just read a little bit but she read the headline and she put two and two together in her mind and she was like my this guy's trying to take over my world and by the way this whole thing of like Muslims coming and they're gonna you know bring Sharia law how many Muslims are in in any of these countries, and how would they impose Sharia law? And I mean, well, this just, there's the no thing, logic. There's a local, you know, here close to Toronto where I am. There was a mosque that was being proposed in a you know a faraway suburb from the city, and uh, this was the big thing. They want to instill Sharia law here, and 
There's not one example of that in North America. And that's, again, just search past the headlines. There's not one example of where that's happened. You can't find it. Why is Burlington, Ontario going to be the place where this happens? Like, it's really like... And by the way, I'll go one step further. Here's what's crazy to me. If these people who... Because obviously, it's it's pitting us against them to get you to donate to my cause, get you to vote for me, right? If the more I can say, they're coming to get us, so vote for me, give me your money. If they took it again, if they took a second to just step back and go, wait a minute, what do you believe in as a conservative Muslim? If you're really religious, what do you believe in? Well, probably against gay marriage. Oh, so is this person who's conservative Christian. Oh, probably against abortion. Oh, so is this person. Probably, they have a lot more in common than they do not in common. And that's, it, it, you know, if anything, like they don't see that, it blows my mind. And so, again, I think given how crazy people are and like how quickly do you think you're going to win a debate if someone's yelling at you, if you yell back, you're not going to be able to convince them. Hopefully, what you can do is maybe open their eyes. Maybe, maybe they'll decide to agree to stay in that room and watch the rest of your speech or your comedy show or whatever's going on and see that, oh, there's people laughing and oh, wow. Maybe you'll put a iota of doubt or curiosity in their minds to go one step further to realize, oh, we're not trying to do X, Y, and Z. The same thing goes for like, you know, Trump supporters became, it's a cult, really. I mean, I mean, if, if you want any kind of indication as to why did people fall for him, just watch any of these televangelists. You know, you watch these televangelists, they got 50,000 people giving all their money to them. What's this, Trump's a televangelist, basically. And... If you poke holes in his existence and his lies, you're threatening the followers' beliefs. But if you're able to come at them with kindness and go, look, you're yelling at me. I understand you're really pissed off. This, I'm doing my job, so I only have like five more minutes. You can stay or you can go. Totally fine. And you keep that tone. And they, you know they might leave yelling. Or they might sit there and watch. Like that lady in this clip that I tell you about, I think she's kind of seething, but she's sitting there. And I don't know what happened to her afterwards, but I do know that she sat there for the rest. And by the way, you're at a comedy club. The whole point of a comedy club is to make fun of everyone. Like that's the other thing they would do. A lot of times like these Trump supporters would be like, why do you make fun of Joe Biden, man? What do you do? And I was like, All right, let me, I'll get there. Just relax. Let me do it on my terms. I'm not a jukebox. I'm not taking requests. So it's crazy. I mean, and matter of fact, I did. I did a joke about Joe Biden because in all honesty, like Joe Biden was, it's all, his thing was all about like, you know, gaffes and saying, you know, saying these old quotes and he's old and all this other stuff. And, and then during the State of the Union address, he was talking about the Ukraine and, and he goes, he goes, no matter what Putin does, he's not going to win the hearts and the minds of the Iranian people. He meant to say Ukrainian. He said Iranian. I was like, okay, as an Iranian American, I got I to gotta do something with this. And so I just did a quick little video. And like, I have a pet peeve where people say Iranian. I go, it's Iranian. So I did this little video where I just was like making fun of it. Very quick, very short, put on my Instagram page. And that clip got like over a million views. Whereas my clips usually get a couple hundred thousand. That got over a million views, which again, leads me to believe there's a lot of conservative Iranians who are like, yeah, man, see? Again, in their minds, Biden's weak, Democrats are weak, and somehow the Republicans are going to free Iran. And so I, I don't have time to 
to stay on that. So with that said, yes, I lost some followers and fans, but I hope that I also gained some followers and fans who were like, oh, this guy's kind of wearing his heart on his sleeve and I and I appreciate that. I wanted to talk about this fan base of yours too, Maz, which I've always been so fascinated with. You know, there's a, it's it's almost like, you know, watching Angelo Sarukas. Angel set up, he'll come to Montreal, five days notice, fill up 600 Greeks in a hall, you know, and, and have a successful show. Frank Spadone, who you know, right? Same thing with the Italians. I watched you do the same with Persians. And I remember thinking early on in my career, oh, I guess that's what will happen with me and the Pakistanis. Not at all. Zero. <laughs> there are almost no Pakistanis coming to see me for reasons I can't fully understand. But I, I see like... You know, even when you're in Norway, when you travel internationally, you have this base of Persians that it's like you build on that, right? You already have this base sort of like uh, already built in. I wanted to ask about that a little bit because as we're suggesting here, you know, an audience like that, Persians, well, there is a different, they come from different parts of Iran. They come from different parts of the, you know, the diaspora has settled in different places and they have different beliefs, but generally they lean a little bit more conservative. I mean, you, I, I can't imagine you have regrets having this fantastic career with all this, this support, but would you, do you think you would have had a different career if you didn't have a sort of built-in Persian audience? Would you have viewed, would you have skewed to different views and, and things on stage? Well, listen, the truth is I didn't, I think a lot of us don't look at, oh, let me do this, this material so that I will attract that audience. I think most comedians just talk about what's funny to them, right? This is what's funny to me. And so that's what I did. I just talked about what's funny to me. I'm I'm very my politics are very left left leaning. But if you watch any of my specials, you'll see ten minutes of political jokes. Again, pretty liberal leaning. And then you'll see another twenty minutes of family jokes. Then you'll see ten minutes of fart jokes. I mean, it's like it's all over the place. You can't really say, oh, it's only this or only that, right? And I have fun with it. I've actually tried to lean more and more into the diversity. Like I love having diversity at my shows. I love, like, I want to be the comedian for people who are in mixed marriages. I want to be the comedian who are the, for people who are immigrants. And I don't care because I feel like, you know, early on in my act, I used to say, Iranians this, Iranians that. Then I realized, oh, we have a lot of similar experiences to Indians and Pakistanis and Sri Lankans and, and Chinese and, you know, Mexicans, all of us. And so then I, because I was doing a joke, I used to do a joke about how my grandmother used to keep all of her cash in her bra. And I said, you know, we thought she was a D cup till one day we went to buy a house and she pulled the down payment out of her bra. We realized she's an A cup. Then we looked closer and we realized she wasn't even grandma, she was grandpa. And so that's the joke. But I was doing that at the Laugh Factory one time and there was these two girls that I think were Mexican or Latina of some sort and they were dying laughing. And I go, oh my God, Mexican grandmothers mm -hmm also keep their mothers, their money in their bra, their cash in their bra. And then, by the way, there's other, I'm sure there's white grandmothers that do that too, you know, in the South or whatever. So I started talking about immigrant this, immigrant that. And matter of fact, my Netflix special, I called Immigrant. I have always tried to just talk about what's funny to me. And the audience has found me. I think with the Iranian audience, they just didn't have, they didn't have anybody. Like I, I was the first Iranian-American comic to start doing stuff. They, they, like I started at the comedy store in front of American audiences and then word got out in the community that there's this guy and then the next thing you know this was like early 2000s and then you know YouTube's coming out and people are sending each other my clips and all of a sudden people discovered me and I think most people were on board from my community they were on board with my 
you know, because originally it was like, oh, Americans see us as the enemy. So that's neither Democrat or Republican. It's just pointing out that we're seen as that. And so a lot of my people, I think, agreed with that and they were on board. But, you know, when it comes to my left-leaning politics, it is what it is. And and by the way, going around the world, I, I actually said, I, I said, you know, if you really want to have a good, successful international career, you should hope that your homeland has a civil war and then your people flee and then you end up, you end up with those people all over the world, which is true. I, I have people, there's Iranians in Australia, there's Iranians in Scandinavia, they're all over the place. And as you say, they do create the base audience and then they bring their husbands or wives or friends who are from other backgrounds and then... They come and they realize, oh, this is, you know, relatable to anybody, which actually is another thing that I try to get across because one of my pet peeves is when people go, oh, he's my favorite Persian comedian or this Iranian comedian did it. And I go, no, 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 anybody will get it. And as proof to myself, when I go to the comedy store, the Laugh Factory or the Improv in LA, and I'm on a night with 10 diverse comics of all kind of backgrounds, I get on stage and the audience, maybe there's like two Iranians in the whole audience and, and the jokes are still making sense. And I go see that, that unfortunately people have sometimes put the label on you and you go, no, no, no. You know, even like I'm getting ready to go to they Europe again. They want to claim you. They want to claim you and they've seen a bit and they think that's what it is. You know, they think the whole thing is going to be that. And you assume that everybody knows about your other acts. You know, I've done like five solo specials like you i think that everyone's seen it but they haven't and the other thing is like even you're i'm getting, going to I'm, europe you're saying yeah i'm going to europe and i've gotten a few people hit me up with messages going so is the show in english or in farsi and i always <laughs> reply go i've never done a show in farsi my shows are all in english and they're like oh okay thanks and i'm like how does this because like on my instagram i'll do something called persian word of the week and even that the whole point of that is to teach english speakers persian so it's explaining a funny Persian word in, in English. So I don't know what to say oh, and do great. to go beyond. I, I really, you know, as you say, it's funny because you go, the Pakistanis ever found you. I look at a guy like Russell, Russell and I go, oh, obviously there's a lot more Indians in all these places, but his audience is even more diverse now because as your numbers get bigger and bigger, more diversity is going to come, similar to like a Joe Coy. So I look at them and I go, God, I, I wish more people from these other backgrounds would discover me. And for me, I get excited when a white guy or an Asian guy or a black guy, you know, says, hey, man, love your comedy. And I go, oh, good. I got one more. You know, it's like it's like fishing. <laughs> so another brick in the wall. I wanted to ask you about this. Just a bit more lighthearted than the, the Trump stuff. So I, I grew up in Montreal and we we would get Vermont radio. So we would get VPR, Vermont Public Radio, which was an affiliate of NPR. And so I grew up listening to like these two guys do this car show, these two weird brothers do these car. I don't even know anything about cars, but I was like, somehow these guys entertain me. I would listen to Terry Gross of Fresh Air. I, and I still follow the podcast. Like this woman has like been the second mother to me, you know? And of course, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me was like another like huge part of something that I, I would listen to on NPR. And I don't know, hearing you on that show, I was like, it's, he has found his people. He has found his place because, you know, you have a very palatable way of getting your a political comedy across. It's not like you're stupid if you don't understand. It's not one of those guys by any means, right? So I don't know, what did that mean to you to be on that show? You were a regular, I heard you a number of times on that. Does that continue? 
Yeah, so wait, wait, don't tell me. I was a fan of the show. I'd be, I like you said, I would play soccer with my friends on Saturdays, and then on the way home, I would listen to it. And I remember hearing Sarah Silverman. She was a not my job guest. So for those people who aren't familiar with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's a fake quiz show that they do every week where they cover the week's news. The host is Peter Sagal. The co-host is now Bill Curtis, and then they have three panelists who are either comedians or journalists or others who they rotate just throughout the year. We There's always like they've got, I guess, like a roster of 30, 40 people and they always rotate three of us at a time. So in a given year, you might end up on like 10 episodes throughout the throughout the year. So they always have a celebrity guest who comes on and they ask quiz questions from them. And so I heard Sarah Silverman on there and I was like, oh, wow, they have comedians as celebrity guests. And I thought, wow, I'd love to be a celebrity guest one day. So when I had my first uh, solo special come out, which was called Brown and Friendly. Whoever was my publicist or something, they got me on as the celebrity guest. So I got to go and play the game and it was fun to play the game. And I don't know how many celebrity guests have then gone on to become panelists, but eventually they reached out. They said, would you like to be a panelist? I said, of course I'd love to be a panelist. So then I became a panelist in, I believe it was like 09 or 2010. It was a while back. And ever since then, I continued to be on it. And it's a fun show to do. It reaches an audience that, like you said, normally I would not reach. And so it's great for me. And, and it got to a point where, so I have done now. So the way people started knowing me for my stand-up was when I did the Access of Evil comedy tour. And that's when the Middle Eastern community, whether it was Arabs or Iranians or other Muslims, Pakistanis, whatever, that's when they started discovering us. Because the Access of Evil comedy tour, again, got a lot of press. We were on Comedy Central. And so that got us known in that community. I did the movie Friday After Next, which was Ice Cube. Uh, he had Friday, Next Friday, Friday After Next. That was a movie that had a cult following in the urban community. So it was a lot of like Latino and black fans would know me from that. Then Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me tends to have like an older white liberal audience. So what would happen was when I would do a live comedy show and I would do meet and greet after the show and people would line up to get the t-shirts and take a picture, I would look down the line and I kind of would know where people know me from. So right. if I saw like an older white couple with a tote bag, I was like, oh, that's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You know, yeah. if I saw like whatever, public I just kind of... Public radio, public radio listeners, you can spot them, of course. Yeah. yeah, so it's been good. It's been a good little addition to my fan base and I and I love being on it. And yeah, it's a fun way and it's all basically improv and it's like you got to, you know, you got to write some jokes going into it in your mind like, okay, we're going to cover this big news piece this week. Make sure you have a few jokes to throw in and then just have fun. And they're so smart. These guys are like, sometimes the panelists they have on there are so smart that that there's times when I'm kind of lost because I'm listening. I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about. And I'm like, can I, you know, just wait for the next subject. You know, it's like, but it's been fun to do, man. It's a fun, fun thing to do. Well, I think you're you're putting yourself down a bit because I want to talk about your podcast, which is Back to School. And those of you who haven't listened to it, it's a very educational podcast and funny as well. And I think you could tell us a bit. That seems to be the, the genesis for that. But is that, that what you want to do with, with that? Yeah, Back to School with Maj Brani happened because my kids, who are now a little older, but when they were a little younger, they would constantly ask me questions I didn't know the answers to. You know, why is the sky blue? How far is the sun? Whatever these questions were. And I was like, gosh, you know, rather than Googling the answers... 
why don't I bring on experts and we'll find out. And so every episode starts with a question from one of, from one of my kids and we ask the expert the question and we go from there. So, you know, just to give you an idea, we had a guest on a while back. He was a former FBI guy, Frank Figluzzi, and he's one of these commentators on MSNBC. He's great. So when I told my son, who's now 13, I said, yeah, I got an FBI guy coming on. What question do you have? And he goes, well, uh, I'd like to find out, has he ever shot anybody? That's a question a, a boy would ask an FBI guy, right? And then we had someone else who helped land the rover on Mars. You know, what question do you have for him? And we had a lady who was a underwater, she's a diver who goes underwater, dives under glaciers, just all kinds of crazy stuff. And more recently, it's become an excuse to just have good conversations with interesting people. You realize how many interesting people are out there doing interesting things. The variety is amazing. Again, you have these these heavy hitters in politics, in science, and and you have also topical things. You had um, Rabia Chowdhury, uh, who, who yeah, was the, the, Rabia was great. the attorney who was a friend of Adnan Syed from Serial. I think everybody who listens to podcasts is listening to Serial. Of course, you know, me being a WWE fan, you had Arya Devarian. How to become a pro wrestler. Uh, recently, that a couple for weeks ago. Sure be Asif's uh, favorite. So, One of the funniest things also, I, I got to say this, Maz, it's like, you know, it's normal you're like 52 to 59 minutes your podcast length and then one of them was less it was like 43 minutes and i was like oh i wonder which one that is that's the low it was 49 minutes and that one is the perception of muslims in america with uh activist custom rashid so it's just yeah. like how are things custom they're pretty Okay, yeah, that's it. Let's yeah. wrap up the podcast. It wasn't too much to talk about. It Got really it. talks, speaks how, how bad things are. But yeah, uh, no, really, yeah. like, what a great idea. And I hope people will, those who are listening, continue to listen and you continue to pick up people. And I'm sure some of our listeners would be very, very interested to check it out. Half the challenge is getting the word. Yeah, yeah. Half the challenge is just getting the word out, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Our absolutely. listeners like yeah. this combination of comedy and education, right? Like learning something. You know, ours is learning about medicine or something like that. So it, it, it's, it's a similar kind of overlap how do you get those guests is it just like you know connections from here you reach out publicists like it just you know, different, yeah different it's ways. a combination of all of it we just had taryn killam who was a former saturday night live member and he came on because we talked to his publicist danny deraney who was like do you want to talk to taryn sure so it's always like that you know sometimes like we had like don winslow who's a famous novelist who's very again left-leaning and I was a fan of his on Twitter and I was like, yeah, big fan. And then he reaches out and he's like, hey, enjoy your comedy. And I was like, would you come on my podcast? He goes, sure. So it's just like, just put it out there and and, and people say, sure. They they take the time and, and it's been interesting. Like I'm surprised sometimes. Glenn Kirshner, Glenn Kirshner is another great analyst. He's a former, I think, uh, what's it called? Uh, not DA. He was a former, what's it called? Not attorney general. He was he was one of these, a federal prosecutor. And he was, I was following him on Twitter and I was like, oh, you know, love what you're saying. And then turns out he's married to an Iranian woman and she tweets back and she's like, oh, one of my favorite bald comedians talking to one of my favorite bald people, her husband. And I was like, oh, wow. And then I was like, would you come on? So he came on. So it's just being out in the world, man, you know. I don't know if you remember this because I've quoted you many times over the years having said this. It was one of my favorite things. You know, as a young comedian, I was opening for you once in Montreal, Concordia University. And as you say, you spend a lot of time with people after the shows and everybody, you know, you, you engage with people for sometimes up to an hour after the show. There's like, you know, talking and signing autographs and all this kind of stuff. So you were telling me that a lot of these guys, and I had just 
seen one of these guys come to you and talk to you about, you know, I want to be a comedian. I want to be a comedian. I'm thinking about becoming a comedian. Do you still get that a fair amount? Yeah. And interestingly enough, I always try to give them some feedback. Really, the basic feedback is write as much as you can and get on stage as much as you can. And more recently, I had a couple of those moments where like I kind of got you know, heartfelt, like I, I, I got a, not, not emotional, but I was like touched. I was touched where there's a guy named Steven Garza at the comedy store and the comedy store just celebrated his 50th birthday. And Steven's this white guy, long hair, looks like he like could be in a metal band or something, sweetest guy in the world. And he took a picture with me there. And he's told me before, by the way, he's taken me to the side and said, you know, I don't know if you remember, but I emailed you and you, you wrote me back. I was like, oh, thank you. But then I read his, you know, whole caption at the when he posts it and there was another guy too i forget who the other guy was but both of them were like this guy steven was like i remember coming to the comedy store one time and i saw maz jobrani for the first time and you know i enjoyed his show and i decided to reach out and he responded and i'm thinking to myself hey good for you for responding i responded to this guy and then <laughs> and so i've had a few of those moments and i and i try it as much as i can i just tell people because a lot of times nowadays people will be like well can i send my clip and have you give me feedback and i'm like that that's not going to do anything for you like you know just keep writing and getting on stage, really. So, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I tell people. I remember that particular guy who had asked you for some advice. He was like, you know, I want to do this, something I wanted to do a long time, but I always worry because, you know, I have a condo, I have a car, I'm not sure, like comedy, I heard you don't make that much money when you start. And I remember you were like, I, sometimes I don't know how to explain to these guys, like, if you're worried about your condo and your car, Maybe you don't need to do this. Like, this is a need. This is a need. And I yeah, remember you yeah, telling me yeah, this absolutely. story about like all these great comics who you started with and they just kind of fell off because they were like, this is crap. This is garbage, dude. We get on at like 1230 on a Wednesday at the store and this crappy room. There's three people left. And you were like, I don't care about that. I I got some stuff I want to get off my chest. And even if it's to arrest, you know, three people, I'll keep doing it. Yeah. That's for anything in life. You know, I tried like, I tried sales, you know, I tried, I mean, there's some people who like, I tried sales and the first time I tried to sell the thing and, and somebody said, no, I was like, oh, I'm done. You know, meanwhile, there's a guy who stuck it out and now he owns a car dealership or whatever. Right. So that's the same with it with stand up. When I started in a stand up comedy class, there was this one guy in particular, it was this gay guy who was hilarious, but he was also an executive at Disney making six figures and he had a house out in Palm Springs. And I remember I ran into him at a movie theater like years later and I was like, hey man. And he's like, hey, and I go, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. And he'd moved up the ladder and was living his life and was happy and that was it. But he wasn't going to skip out on his condo in Palm Springs on the weekends to hang out and get up after being bumped five times by some celebrity and get up at one in the morning. But I found what I wanted to do finally. And so for me, I was going to hang out. And there was moments where, I mean, it even like, you know, my current wife, who was my girlfriend there, like we broke up for a minute because I, I was like, I got to prioritize this thing. So yeah, I think it's got to be a need. It's got to be and whatever that is. I mean, you know, Bill Gates and what was it? Steve was no, uh, Paul Young or was Steve, whatever, his, his counterpart. They built Microsoft out of the garage. And I'm sure there was, they probably missed out on a lot of stuff, but they're really into it. So if you find the thing you're really into, then do it. A lot of people have become doctors. They got to be a resident for four years, getting up at three in the morning and going and checking on someone whose heart is failing. I'd walk out of the hospital. I'd be like, I, I, I don't want to hang out with for this shit. I'm out of here, you know? So it really is. It's like, you really got to, want to do it and, and get through all that stuff. Will 
Trump run again? And will that mean that you will then become a Canadian once and for all? Gosh, I don't know if he's going to run against someone. Actually, the Michael Cohen, whose podcast I listened to, he was on my podcast as well, who was his former fixer. He says, and I kind of agree with him, he goes, this is part of his grift. He's just going to keep saying, I might run, I might run. Keep giving me money, keep giving me money. Because once he declares he's going to run, he's going to have to spend that money on the run. So he's just taking money right now. And eventually, I think he might just want to be a kingmaker and be like, all right, Ron DeSantis, I crown thee and continue to have his influence and just, you know, play golf. He may be that. And I don't know if he's going to run. But even Ron DeSantis, any of these guys that wins, I mean, they're just running this country into the into the ground. They just, they, they're basically getting rid of abortion here. I actually tweeted today. I said, so is now the right time to move to Canada? Yeah, in the back of my mind, like the, I do see this country becoming more and more conservative, religious leaning. It's crazy that we're in 2022 and that all this stuff's happening. And so in the back of my mind, I'm like, do we move to Sweden mm. at some point? Where do we well, go? It, this is so a funny thing. You know, I've talked to Asif about this too. Like if I describe two countries and I tell you one is Pakistan, 1972, that my father left from or wherever, 1970, or America 2022, you'd be like hard pressed to be like, wait, which one is which? I don't know which one has the corrupt leader and religious fundamentalism and this corruption and this and this and uh, no regard for its like general population and, you know, no ability to socially serve. It's, you know, the, the, the social welfare is a dirty word and this kind of stuff. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's what a flip. Same thing with Iran. And that's why I see it playing out. Like, I feel like the way the religious uh, Muslims took over Iran. Like, I feel it's happening here. And and here, we know that there's a majority of, you know, people who would lean in the other direction, but it's going to be a minority ruling a majority. And I think that's the formula for civil war. So, yes, please uh, keep We a have bed, a room in the uh, basement. Yeah. Or a couch. Yeah. Couch yeah. ready. Yeah, I'm yeah, coming. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll keep you away from Ottawa. Ottawa has been a hotbed of... Ridiculous activity funded by the Americans, they say, by the way. But anyway, that's yes. <laughs> you come to super yes, safe Toronto. Do not bring your truck. Super safe Toronto. We have a place for you always. Maz, you will be at the Algonquin Commons Theater in Ottawa, truck or not. That is on May 20th, a Friday. And the next night you come to our very own Toronto. You can kick around the tires, see how you feel about the city. Well, you've been here hundreds of times by now. Yeah. And you'll be at the forward. John Bassett Theater. Is it another one of those you had two shows and you added a third show or? We sold out show one, two, added okay. show two. That's almost sold out. We'll see if there's time for show three. There might not be. So we may just, you know, do two okay. and call it well, a day. Leave tickets. the morning more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Selling out quickly. Yeah. 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 All right. And you can, most, mojarabmojarai.com is where all the international dates are, right? That's never limited to just a, a small, small bunch of shows. You always, uh, when you leave the house, you leave for a long time. You're going, you're hitting that road. Yeah. I'm out, baby. And, uh, and links <laughs> to your uh, podcast. It's called Back to School. And you can find that from yes, uh, Back to with as well. Yeah. Maz, thank yeah. you for your time as always, man. It's very, very nice to talk to you. Namaste, gentlemen. <laughs> That's Namaste. Not That's not us. Sharia law. Sharia law. That's also not us. All right. All right. There we go. Salam alaikum. Thank you so much, Maz. We else. really appreciate it.
Thanks again to Maz Durbani for being on it. Love listening to that guy. I think he's a hilarious comedian, so insightful about the political climate in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, I could listen to that guy for hours. Uh, it was great having yeah, him. Yeah, also a good dude. Just a good dude. Solid guy, for sure. We really mm. appreciate having him on. Check out his shows coming up May 20th in Ottawa, May 21st in Toronto. And, and uh, all over the world. Exactly. Remember to reach out to us, drvcomedian at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, drvcomedian. Ali, you should always be remembering to plug your newly rebooted other podcast as well. It is called This Podcast is Delicious. It is a good time. We, As I mentioned, we had Bob Bloomer on for a two-parter. And we just had an episode talking about omelets and mimosas. We're, you know, we're, we we put our pants on one leg at a time. Don't think that we're <laughs> looking down at the plebes, but sometimes you want to talk about uh, omelets and mimosas. Yeah, I got to listen to that. I'm a big omelet guy, as you know, and because I watched Selena versus Chef, you know, Selena Gomez had that that show and she learned from a French chef, I forget his name, but about how to make the perfect French omelet. So I'll compare it to your uh, omelet making skills on your podcast. And remember... That although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues, we talk about it for your interest and information only. And they're not medical advice. Not a uh, one. Really talk about not a one. Much, except, for, except for Maz uh, talking about uh, uh, how he would not want to be a doctor. <laughs> but please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.